0: It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan.
1: Thanks, Dave. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We appreciate you once again downloading us and giving us a listen as we talk about week four of the 2015 Division Three football season, the podcast for Monday, September 28th, 2015. And what a great week it was for Division Three, Keith. Um, let's see. Uh, Division III's number one team goes and beats uh, the NAIA's number one team on the road. Um, ESPN spends a significant amount of time on uh, two Division three campuses, does some great feature stories, and uh, features you know, one of Division three's top rivalries. Um, and then also a, uh, a, a non-conference game that was scheduled late in the offseason gets played, and it was a thriller and, you know... <laughs> throw that on top of some other great finishes and some great uh, things that we learned about some teams and some conferences it was just a great week for Division three football.
0: Sure there are a lot of weeks where one of those things happens and, and that would make it a great week and uh, for for all of those things to happen on top of great finishes you know from coast to coast and uh, great rivalry games really for for an early season weekend you know September, uh, weekend to have these, this many uh, rivalry games. I mean, Wabash and Wittenberg's not the, not the traditional rivals, but it's become, um, you know, the de facto North coast title game. So that's a, that's a great game to see this early in the season. Um, the whitewater morning side thing was so unprecedented. And I know you and you and uh, Jason talked a little bit about that, about what it meant to D3 and NAIA to see the two top teams meet on the field. You know at the time they're both ranked number one and obviously they played a great game with a great finish you got a tommy johnny game that that sets an attendance record and and that um wesley north central game decided by a two-point conversion with seven seconds on the clock those four things uh make it a great week alone and there was so many other highlights of course that we'll get to but um it, it i don't know if we could ask for much more this early in the season
1: no no we really couldn't um, the, uh, the, the, the showdown of the number ones will, uh, will come up on that in a few minutes. Um, we'll start with the Tommy Johnny game. Uh, if you woke up and watched SportsCenter uh, sports center on the road at 7 a.m. Eastern time, uh, 6 a.m. Central, you know, remember the, the people, the, and several thousand people in the stadium uh, at St. John's while this, uh, while this sh- uh, show was being aired, uh, they were, uh yeah, they were up pretty early. It was still dark in the stadium when that started. But um, I even haven't even had a chance to watch all of it yet. I've seen some of the photos of the event, and I watched some of the coverage and watched some of it on my DVR. But I, I thought that was uh, some fast, fantastic features that uh, that they did, and they really came. They followed um, they followed a St. John's student uh, student athlete around uh for the day, including his uh, his film session, his classes, and then his uh, his job as a night watchman. Over on uh, St. Benedict's campus, and uh, you know, just even uh, aside from the game, which had great hoopla and uh, and a lot of things around it, and we learned a little bit about uh, St. Thomas and St. John's too. Uh, I just thought the the pregame coverage and the other things that went around it were pretty fantastic as well.
0: And that doesn't always happen, you know, when when a large outlet that doesn't get a chance to cover D three all the time, when they when they get it get it, take some time to dip the toe. In the water, sometimes it turns out great, and sometimes it doesn't. So I understand the importance of you pointing out when it does turn out great, because it really does matter to us.
1: And, and Keith, I know that you're—I um, don't know if partial is the right word—but you, uh, you, uh, you—you've seen the. Uh, you've seen the St. John's tailgate in the past. Now that's about um, eight to ten years ago. And uh, you've seen the Franklin uh, tailgate. And you, I know you think a lot of the Franklin tailgate. But I think if you had been there on Saturday, you would have been uh, really impressed with what was going on at St. John's. That uh, you know, there just there were so many people. It seemed like there were three to four times as many people as there were the the week that you and I were there. However many years ago that was now.
0: Yeah, that was a St. John's St. Thomas game, but that was the pre-Glen Caruso era. So it wasn't the the mighty. St. Thomas teams that you have now where both teams are ranked in the top fifteen, you know, when when they meet. Um, I, I had them both in the top ten coming into to this week. And and I, you know, sometimes you know on your ballot um, that two teams are gonna sort themselves out and it's okay to leave them next to each other because that game will, will give you the information you need <laughs> to, to yeah. move them around. Yeah. Um, but you know, as far as the um, the scene at St. John's, I mean, when I really stopped to think about it. Where where is a better place that Saint, that that ESPN could go, uh, could bring SportsCenter to? You know the the only chance of finding one that would match the, the, the Johnny Tommy atmosphere would have to be that second weekend in November, and there are you know several candidates for, for that. But I don't think you could find anything in the last week of September that would that would be quite the atmosphere that uh, that you saw in Minnesota on Saturday.
1: And, and I, I don't want to get into a position where we're kind of re-ranking rivalries or, or, or talking about a lot of that stuff because a, a lot of those games, as you said, are, are played in that uh, week eleven and that second weekend of November, or some of them in week ten, I guess probably as well. Uh, but I, I will say that uh, you know this has been a uh, that in the <laughs> Caruso era, which would probably not make a lot of people happy to hear it referred to that way. But since St. Thomas has been competitive, that is when this game is really blown up. Um, you know, going from seven thousand, eight thousand, nine thousand a game to Thirteen thousand, sixteen
0: thousand, seventeen thousand a game. Well, and and me having not not been to that game since you know in the time that it's blown up, I still would say St. John's. That game at St. John's is as impre- impressive in atmosphere as you'd see anywhere in D three. So imagine you being there um, on on Saturday with one of the seventeen thousand and and. You know, 17,000 doesn't sound like a big number, especially as someone who's familiar with the, the NFL-sized crowds or the D1-sized crowds. Um, but when you pack 17,000 into a place that's built for, what is it built for, like eight to 10,000? Yeah, and it's then about right. You, like- you have people, extra stands brought in, people sitting on the grass. That, I mean, that feels, I mean, I don't know what, how to put a number on it, but it just feels amazing.
1: Uh, of course, the uh, game won by St. Thomas by the score of thirty-five to fourteen. Um, you know they did a, a lot of things impressive uh, in the run game. They did a lot of things impressive on defense. We talked a, a, a good amount about the run game, and, and we posted uh, an interview I did with Jordan Roberts, the uh, the running back who ran for two hundred and thirty yards and three touchdowns in his first Tommy Johnny game that's on the website let's talk a little bit more about the defense in this uh, in this podcast keith and one of the knocks on st thomas defensively last year was how the linebacking core had had kind of slipped from previous years you know it's linebackers had been a strength of theirs um but for two years in a row they turned over a bunch of starters and and uh things just didn't really work out as well uh for them last year but they changed things up this time around uh they moved some outline outside linebackers to the inside they uh, in their three four front and they moved safeties up to outside linebacker and the change really uh, resulted in more speed at linebackers so they uh they were a lot more successful on defense on saturday um i i Lost track of how many third down sacks they had, but I I know at least uh, I no- made note of about four of them on Twitter, and there was probably at least one other um, that the uh, that the, I think the speed had a big uh, had a bit of big effect on, and then. You know, we've talked a lot in the past year and a half or so in this podcast about St. John's running back Sam Sura, and, um, you know, they, they kept running Sura up the middle. I suspect they probably felt that they couldn't be effective running him, you know, trying to get him to the outside as much because of the speed of the of the Tommies on defense, but uh, he really struggled on Saturday. He only had 25 carries for 74 yards there.
0: Yeah, and, you know, what stood out to me by far, Was uh, was even just the few minutes you're able to click in to the St. Thomas St. John's game. I'm not calling it that. Right. And um, (laughs) and see, you know, the thing that just stands out is just how physical St. Thomas was um, the, the size on the line. Um, the way their backs ran and finished runs. You saw that uh, that Roberts had 31 carries. The, uh, the the second running back had 16 carries. They didn't hardly throw the ball. They didn't need Gould to, to, to make a whole lot of big plays in the passing game. They did it with defense. They did it with just a real physical straight-ahead running game. And, and St. John's likes to run the ball as well. So, I mean, it wasn't one of those games that, that we get accustomed to talking about sometimes on the podcast where it's um, – you know, 60, 70 points going there, throwing the ball up and down the field. It was kind of, I don't know if old school is the right word for it, because I don't think either of those teams are old school. I think they're still creative in, in what they do, even though it's straight ahead. But um, but that just, it, it just the size and the, and the physicality that St. Thomas played with really jumped off the screen. And then, you know, it, it jumped off the box score, too, when you look at uh, 338 yards rushing they finished with to just 45 for St. John's and uh, six yards of carry.
1: Uh, I'm I'm looking up sizes now. David Simmet listed at six nine three fifty. He's the uh, he's the the starting right tackle for Saint Thomas. I, I saw pictures of the Tommies coming on the field up in the press box. This wasn't nearly as apparent, but Glenn Caruso, who played center at in Division three at Ithaca, walking on next to David Simmett, and Simmet has. 10 inches on him he is huge Compared to a guy who was playing uh, Who was playing Division 3 on the Offensive line about 20 years ago
0: Yeah and and, You know Remember that passage in um, Austin Murphy's book about St. John's, where the they, St. John's goes to play—I think it was wisconsin O'claire at the time—in the book, and and you know the whole chapter is kind of about how wisconsin Claire is these big uglies, and St. John's beats them with their with their wiles or whatever their 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 smarts and their wit and uh, their grit. But you know St. Thomas is now that team, that big giant team. And I, you know, I hesitate to say this on the podcast because we can bring it up later, and I'll have to own it. But um, it's it's kind of like when you when when a team lines up and plays whitewater. Yeah, they, they just they just you know they're not not that they can't do anything fancy, but they don't they don't need to. They mm-hmm. just line up and mash you straight ahead and they do that and by the fourth quarter of a game or the third quarter even you know the the defense starts to wear down and, and you start to see those those plays that were maybe three yard runs in the first half become six yard runs and uh, that, that also helps when they get a lead as St. Thomas did on Saturday because it helps them finish the game off
1: Well I saw both of those offensive lines this weekend and we'll talk about the Whitewater offensive line coming up in a little bit but yeah they definitely had very similar performances um, you know obviously I, I think that Whitewater faced a, a higher caliber and team in facing Morningside but yeah they both looked fairly similar and uh, I definitely made note of that Um, I'm gonna talk about the intangibles of this game Keith not just the rivalry but playing in front of 17,000 fans having ESPN and its cameras on both campuses this week this was a big freaking deal for division three so I asked senior linebacker Tim McClanahan about what it was like to play in a big game in front of so many fans and here was his response you know it's pretty awesome I mean I got a lot of friends go to both schools and you know what really helped me the most, I think, is playing with the seniors last year. They lost two years in a row on our field, and I came out today, saw them all here. So to get the win for them, that felt really good. You know, Some of them crying, some of them got tears in their eyes. So that was a pretty proud moment to you know, get the win for the alumni, guys who really set the, you know, set the ground for us. Keith, this is the fourth year in a row now the road team has won this rivalry. As someone who's played in a 10,000-plus fan rivalry at this level, is it, is it at all more distracting to play at home? Sometimes we hear from coaches come playoff time that it's actually less of a hassle to play on the road.
0: I'm a huge proponent of road games. Um, I, I love I love them as a player because uh, when you're on the road, all it was was you and the game. You can get you can sort of block everything out once you get on the bus, whether it's an hour ride, two, three hour ride. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot else to think about. And uh, you know, some people lock right into the game, and some people like to zone out while they're on the bus and then lock in when they get there. But it, they're pretty much. There's no distractions. And when you're at home, there's family in the stands. There's there's people you're trying to meet and, and all kinds of – you have time to kill so you can go back to your dorm. And you just don't do that on the road. So I, I think to some degree, it's it's easier to focus on football when you're on the road. But I also think that is in a rivalry game like this, I mean, probably you have the jitters or you have the, the – the, Butterflies in the stomach for the first kickoff or the first series that you're in, and then after that, it's just football. and And if you're any good at it, at least this how it was for me, you can kind of tune out the the stands or the the noise or whatever while you're playing because you you have to you know figure out so many adjustments that you're making on the fly, whether it's whether you're playing offense or defense. You're you know reading keys and figuring and trying to figure out tendencies and all that. That you really do tune all that stuff out while you're playing. But when you come back off on the sideline, you know, I think if you're at home, yeah, you probably are pointing at people in the stands or you, you see things that you wouldn't see or notice or care about on the road.
1: All right. I know that's a lot of time on the Tommy Johnny game, but ESPN spent a lot of time on it and, uh, you know, we have to do that, uh, too. Uh, it was a lot of other games. Keith, you spent a lot of time with the Wesley North Central game. Um, you know, that was going on simultaneously at the uh, as, as the same game I was at. So I tuned in about, uh, I finally tuned in to actually watch about uh, 25 seconds left. So uh, what did I miss?
0: Uh, yeah, you missed a lot. But you caught the, the key 25 seconds, I guess, if you saw the last play and the two-point conversion. Uh, I'll keep it brief because I have a lot of Wesley North Central stuff later in the podcast rundown. Um, great game, back and forth. Um, the 50-49 was the final. Wesley scored with seven seconds left. And then on the road, decided to go for two. Um, and they made the two-point conversion. And it's, it wouldn't have worked if they hadn't, if uh, Joe Callahan hadn't had so much success running early in the game, uh, really in the second half, he kind of turned it on. Um, but it was a, a back-and-forth game, and I, I felt like even though North Central took a 28-14 lead in the half, um, Wesley had had a, I feel like it was a, you know, you get to 100 points in a game and you kind of forget which what was scored in what order. But, um, what, you know, Wesley had had a sequence there where there was a turnover and North Central had gone ahead. But I, I didn't feel like Wesley was out of the game at all. North Central comes out in the third quarter, uh, goes up 35-14, and then, you know, you're figuring this is not looking good for Wesley. And then um, Callahan hits a big, big um, touchdown pass to Bryce Shade, 59-yarder. And then kind of after that, he just threw threw them on his back. Um, obviously, you know, J- Mike Dress, Chip Knapp saw some things um, that they could exploit in the North Central defense, and, and this is probably mostly uh, mostly Knapp responsible for this, but um, they started – Using Callahan on uh, quarterback draws, some designed runs for him uh, a couple times. At least once, I thought it. W- I didn't think it was a draw. I thought he, it was a read, and he and he pulled it and kept it and ran. But um, but all you know, they Jamar Baynard had 141 yards rushing in this game, but it was the 111 yards from Joe Callahan that really opened up the offense in the second half, allowed Wesley to storm back and, and make it close, and then they got to a point where they were just trading touchdowns. North Central has a freshman quarterback, and and he made some big plays. Down the stretch uh, to get uh, North Central uh, ahead, and actually uh, Wesley fumbles a punt with about four minutes left, so that's how North Central takes the lead. And then even at the, at the moment where Wesley's driving, it was kind of a very methodical final drive. They took over on the six yard line; they had two minutes and whatever seven seconds left when they took over, and it, it was just, it was the kind of drive where they were like, "Well, they're getting a few yards." And they got to pick up the pace here, but they got some time. And 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 all of a sudden, that you know, they they get down to where it's close enough. And uh, Callahan throws beautiful touch pass. The DB uh, who was in coverage on that play had actually had a pretty good game, um, but never turned around. So Callahan threw it kind of right over his helmet into James Okiki's hands, and then the two point play was set up. And uh, and I'm sure you know if that two point play isn't something that we discuss in the podcast, it'll probably be in the play of the week. Or the highlights somewhere, you'll, you'll certainly want to see it. Um, but it was a tremendous game, a back and forth game, and um, I feel like for North Central, they, they should be glad that they played it. And remember, as you mentioned already once in the podcast, it's um, you know it's a game they took late, didn't have to take this game, but they did it because it's a type of type of team that that North Central is going to see in the playoffs, assuming they get there. Um, but they're they're sort of they're really well battle tested for the CCIW. Slate right now, and it looks like it's going to be a pretty tough year in the CCIW. So I think they should be glad they played Platteville and Wesley.
1: Yeah, North Central is going to have to run the table at this point. That we haven't had a three loss, uh, a, a team with three D three losses getting that large bid.
0: Yeah, but I, but I think for for a team to to set itself up to face tough competition in the conference, you couldn't have couldn't have asked for for uh, two. Better tests, and you know the the opener against Trine was was uh, was a decent game as well. Um, the thing that North Central has to figure out, of course, is the is the psyche part of um, when they get a big lead, and then another team starts to come back, as will probably happen at some point during the season. You know, how do they they not? lose track of it and I thought they did a good job a couple you know taking control of that game even after they gave up the three touchdown lead against Wesley they just couldn't get off the field that final drive and a lot of that is really a credit to Wesley and not a knock to North Central
1: all right, we have another big game that happened on Saturday that doesn't really fit into uh, our other packages, other than the fact that it was a um, first of all a really telling game and secondly a very important game, um, and that's the uh, the Wabash-Wittenberg game, a, a game in which um, you know I, I as I looked at this game coming into it, Keith, I, I saw Wittenberg had given up uh, 27 points, I believe it was, to Capital in week one, and had given up a, a few touchdowns to Ohio Wesleyan in their in their conference opener, and I just felt like the uh, the leading indicators, as it were, for Wittenberg were not very good, and then it certainly showed up that way on Saturday.
0: Yeah, it, it did pretty much from the start. And, uh, you know, I've I've doubted Wittenberg going into the Wabash game in, in previous years, and, and Wittenberg has had success. Um, I believe they won the past two in this series coming in. And, um, you know, I, I thought the same way that St. Thomas physically dominated, I don't know if "dominates" is the right word, but physically um, you know, imposed its will on Saint John's. Um, Whitewater did the same thing. In the Morning Side, at least when it counted in the fourth quarter on Thursday night, uh, that was pretty much the the Wabash game in a nutshell. And I thought the key indicator for me coming in was how well Wabash did defensively against Hampton Sydney. And then you watch Hampton Sydney turn around and put up points like it normally does in its next couple games. That was sort of the indicator that this might be a special Wabash defense, and they really really on Saturday, um, showed it defensively. The four interceptions were big. One of them went back for a touchdown. But I thought this was really what stood out. Wabash had the 181 to 26 rushing edge. And if if Wittenberg was the type of team that you know spread it out and just wanted to pass all day, you might be able to say, well, 26 rushing yards doesn't tell you the whole story because they gained a lot of yards. Well, they ran 33 times. So we can't say they didn't try to run. They just averaged 0.8 yards per attempt.
1: Yeah, yeah that's pretty bad uh, and especially when you couple that with the four interceptions, uh, as you mentioned that's a that's a that's a tough combination to overcome
0: yeah I, I just think this is a really standout potentially a really standout Wabash defense and potentially a standout Wabash team uh, there have been times when when I felt like the the Wabash Wittenberg winner floats up really high in the pole because they don't play. Too many strong teams in the course of their conference schedule. I think this is a Wabash team that deserves its ranking and will be a tough out when we get to the postseason. I think they'll be part of the postseason. And it's not going too far out on a limb now that they've beaten Wittenberg.
1: On Thursday night, that. Uh Clash of the number one teams between uh, Morningside, the top-ranked team in the NAIA, and Wisconsin Whitewater. Of course, the two-time defending champ of Division Three. Um, game started off a, a little bit rough, and of course, uh, keep this in mind too. If if you didn't watch the game, or if you tried to watch the game on uh, ESPN Three and and had trouble because of how poorly it was produced, um, it, just so you know, it rained pretty steadily throughout the entire game. Uh, sometimes it was just a heavy miss. Sometimes it was pretty heavily down, uh, pretty heavy downpour. Um, but you know, the, the things that I noticed, we've, we've talked about the offensive line just briefly. Uh, they were, uh, they were really strong on, uh, on Saturday. We'll, we'll talk about that more coming up in a, in a little bit here. But, uh, I thought what was interesting, Keith was, uh, you know, Whitewater, uh, was, was struggling early, struggling on offense. Um, you know, uh, Ratliff was doing a great job on the ground, but Chris Nelson was having trouble finding his, uh, finding his touch in the passing game, trouble finding a rhythm, didn't get a lot of pass attempts in the first half. And, uh, the rain was an issue. And I think the, uh, the morning side defense was a, a bit of an issue for him as well. Um, uh, and in the, at, at halftime, you know, uh, the uh, the Warhawks were leading, and there was maybe some doubt as to whether they should have been. And uh, you know, you've probably heard Kevin Bullis talk about that already if you watched uh, some of that interview we did after the game. And in the second half, uh, I was telling Jason Danley this. That's the NAIA football guru who uh, I uh, covered the game with. Um, that was just textbook Whitewater football. Uh, they pounded the rock. They played really strong defensively, other than giving up a couple of big plays. Um, but that was. That was Whitewater in a nutshell. When we were talking in the press box, someone asked on Twitter, when was the last time that Whitewater had to come back with the, or were trailed in the fourth quarter? You know, it was all the way so long ago. It was the last regular season game of last year against Wisconsin River Falls, and they came back and won that game, and they came back and won this one too.
0: Yeah, and, and to be honest, I was pretty stunned because the way that game started off for Whitewater – and then um, for them to go up, I believe it was thirty to sixteen. Felt like they were in pretty good control. You know, you you turn around. I happened to be working on Thursday night uh, at a full time job, so then I you know I would just peek in from time to time. And when I look back at, um, I was like, how, how did Whitewater even fall behind in the, in this thing? And um, uh, it turned out though that they were able to put together. Uh, a, a nice game-winning drive. I guess thirty to sixteen doesn't make that make sense because uh, you know because because they were the Whitewater finished with thirty-three, um, but they put together the game-winning drive. And as you said, textbook Whitewater running the ball, pounding it with Jordan Ratliff. And and I think the thing that that stands out about about Whitewater and makes makes it tough to to look at them just give you give given the eye test and uh, and say why is this team won six of the past eight national championships if you're just looking at them because sometimes a lot of years uh, you know they may not have an amazing player or they may have one amazing player and and you just what stands out about them they don't throw the ball up and down the field and score at will and what they're so good at of course is is defense you know tackling They're, they're not blowing assignments they're they're good in coverage but I think it's that style of of offense it just wears you down over the course of game over the course of a game. So whether they have a, a really big lead or a small lead, there will be times when you're watching them and and you're like, you know, they're they're not crushing the opposition. But when it comes down to it, because of their style, when they need a big drive in the fourth quarter, because of their experience too, because they've been in these type of games and because they've had to win them. In the postseason, remember last year, not only did they win that River Falls game, but they had to come back to beat Warburg. They had to hang on against Linfield in the semifinals. They have experience in those kind of games and that style just wears you down over the course of a game to the point where, you know, when they need a big drive, they're able to pull it out.
1: One of the things I asked Jason Danley, who's the guy who used to run NAIFootball.net or when it became Victory Sports Network and that sort of thing. He has his own blog now, RoadToTheChipper.com. I believe I got that correct. Um, one of the things I wanted to get his take on was where does or where would Whitewater fit if they were in the NAIA? And here was his response. When you look at how Whitewater would uh, get into the NAI, there's such a physical ball team up front, physical football wins in the NAIA. And, and ultimately if you don't turn the football over, and those are things that would make them very successful, obvious at this level. But you know, for 12 months, you, you got it on me. For the first time, we can really say, uh, in, in all the years that you've covered Division three and I've covered NAI, we could actually put the two best teams in the country at that moment against one another and see how they did. And you know,
0: you got me by three this time.
1: There will be a rematch next year on the road, or well, actually on the road for Morningside at Whitewater. Uh, you know, obviously, no idea if either of those teams will be ranked number one at the time, but uh, we'll uh, we'll see if we even deign to put bragging rights back on the line next time around. And time to move on. Let's head into uh, the game balls section of our uh, podcast. Uh, I'm going to give my game ball to the Whitewater offensive line. I know Keith likes to give his uh, game ball to multiple people, sometimes entire sides of the ball. I've got five guys. Actually, I've got seven guys. On the offensive line, Tony Kepnick, Connor Peters, Spencer Shear, Eli Sloniker, Johnny Widerholt, plus tight ends Brett Campbell and uh, Tony Gamina. I have my opinion of their performance, but let's hear Kevin Bullis's take on how these guys performed and what that performance did for the rest of the team.
0: First half, we you know we were shocked that we were ahead. I'm going to be very candid with you. I mean, you know, to look at the scoreboard and, and as many mistakes as we'd made, and to be ahead, uh, we you know we we weren't very happy with ourselves coming out. You know, on halftime, our offensive line, and I really got to give them that that those five guys, and there's really six guys that play in that group. I got to give them a credit because, to me, they grabbed it. Them and Jordan Ratliff kind of grabbed the control and tempo of that game. I think that's ultimately what set up the tempo at the end for our offense and, and uh, in kind of throwing the ball well in that last uh, at the end of the game there, and that really ignited our defense. And and our defense to come out with that stop down here after that fumble. Um, no, that that they like I said. I think our offensive line kind of uh, served as the ignition. Pat, we're not actually sending them a real game ball, so one guy can share it or multiple side of the balls. Anyone can have have a game ball, right? There's no limit to how many people can get it. I'll give mine to one person this week, though. I'll go with Wesley quarterback Joe Callahan, but I have to admit, I consider Jordan Ratliff and Jordan Roberts, and I wondered how to also acknowledge the O-lines, so I'm glad you took care of that. Uh, As for Callahan, it wasn't that he never flinched in leading his team on an 11-play, 95-94-yard game-winning drive or that he threw the the touchdown pass with seven seconds left with with nice touch, I might add. But the two-point conversion play only worked because Callahan had been so successful as a runner earlier in the second half. As soon as he rolled out, North Central defenders tried to beat him to the pylon, and he threw a soft touch pass to a wide-open Xavier Allen for the 50-49 edge. He did it on the road. He helped the Wolverines rally from a three-touchdown, 35-14 deficit with that 59-yard touchdown pass to Bryce Shade and then a couple of touchdown runs. Callahan finished with 414 yards passing and three touchdowns, and he ran for 111 yards and three more touchdowns. Joe Callahan gets my game ball because on the road, against the top 25 team, with his team in need, he simply put Wesley on his back the way great players do. I don't remember him being this much of a runner, but whether it was quarterback draws or read, or keeps, or deep passes when they needed it, he had it going against North Central.
1: For my team on the rise, a team that's uh, moving up in the top 25, or in a position to, I want to point out that Wisconsin-Platteville moved up on a bye week. Uh, They passed St. John's and Wittenberg, more because those two teams passed Platteville in the opposite direction, but they also passed Mm -hmm. Rowan, which is a team that won this week. Uh, This could be because Rowan needed to rally to beat uh, Montclair State, but I'm going to peg it instead to that Wesley-North Central game. That's because Follow me. The Pioneers beat the Cardinals, and so did Wesley in similar fashion. Wesley obviously did not blow the Cardinals out. So perhaps in a few voters' eyes, that made Platteville compare a little more favorably to Wesley, and they were uh, interested in moving them up.
0: Yeah, my riser is actually North Central. They moved from 22nd to 21st in the poll after blowing a three-touchdown lead over a top-25 team and having an opponent execute a perfect late-game sequence for the second week in a row. I think it's the right move, though. First, if you go toe-to-toe twice, Platteville needed overtime and Wesley needed that two-point conversion in the final seconds. You prove you belong in the top 25. Second, North Central didn't need to take either of those games. They play in the CCIW. They've got Wheaton, Illinois Wesleyan, Elmhurst. That's competition enough. They went and added that Wesley game. So you have to compare North Central with top 25 teams who are playing weak, or half-decent regional opponents instead of these national games like Wesley. With a different schedule, the Cardinals probably could have won their first three games, 52-14, 49-0, and 56-17. And one more point, to be honest. If Wesley misfires on the two-point conversion, is North Central any better or worse of a team? I also noticed, uh, while we're talking the top 25 here, that Whitewater picked up two of Mount Union's first place votes in the poll. And while there was nowhere for the Warhawks to rise on my ballot, and I don't think it's a reflection of anything Mount Union has not done to date, I did think it was nice to see the respect for the Warhawks beating NAIA number one and picking up a couple votes.
1: You know, I haven't seen the NAIA coaches poll. I suspect that uh, the uh, NAIA coaches will not feel the same about their top team losing to our top team. Just a just just a thought. Uh, My team that will take a fall, uh, you know, obviously Wittenberg, they have already, but uh, just barely staying in the top 25. But the other reason I mention this is there just really aren't many opportunities for them to boost their resume the rest of the way. Uh, they have seven games left, and five of them are against Worcester, Hiram, Oberlin, Kenyon, and Allegheny. So uh, those games against Denison and DePauw uh, either have to be particularly brilliant, or there's just not a lot of uh, room for Wittenberg to really make itself look much better on a national scale.
0: My team that'll take a fall is center. That's a little bit of the easy pick after the Colonels got demolished by Chicago, a team that's now getting significant votes. That game was 49-16 to at one point. Chicago now playing uh, in the SAA, and Center being a team that was 10-0 and uh, in that conference last season, certainly didn't think that game would, would be decided by the margin. It was. 49-30 was the final, but Center added a score uh, as time ran out, so it certainly wasn't even as close as it looked.
1: Uh, off the beaten highlight, I'm going with uh, I'm going with one of my favorite conferences, one of the ones I cover for kickoff, and that's the uh, UMAC, the Upper Midwest Athletic Conference. And in this case, I'm looking at Minnesota Morris scoring twice in the final 58 seconds to beat Iowa Wesleyan 33-25 and improve to two and two. The Cougars went through an 0-10 season last year and uh, new head coach Rob Cushman wasn't hired until after the recruiting season was basically over. So Morris doesn't have a particularly big roster this season. But on Saturday versus Iowa Wesleyan, a program with a similar challenge in terms of numbers, the Cougars were able to come away with the win. Uh, Devin Griffin scored with 58 seconds left in the game to give the Cougars a 26-25 lead and Clayton Saiz added an interception return for a touchdown 23 seconds later to secure that final margin. Uh, Sainz is one of the three players the Cougars managed to pick up when Haskell Indian Nations University closed down its football program over the summer. Three players that they really needed a a roster that's that small. And and by the way, not to jump ahead to the review of Triple Take, but this is the game I said would be decided in the fourth quarter. And um, yeah, it was decided in the fourth quarter.
0: Cracking me up. Um, For my off-the-beaten-path highlights, I'll go plural here. There were a lot of game-altering kicks in Week 4. Coast Guard's Tyler Henning kicked a 37-yard game-winning field goal with three seconds left to beat Salve Regina, 21-20. Kane's Steve Ferlisi kicked a 35-yard game winner as time ran out to beat William Patterson on Friday night. And then Tufts freshman Willie Holmquist, he got an overtime game-winning kick from 28 yards out to beat Hamilton. There were some big misses, too. St. John Fisher missed a potential game-winning field goal in the first overtime, but Brockport State missed the game-tying point after in the second overtime, allowing Fisher to win the Courage Bowl 42-41. Cortland State's Matt Green also missed from 52 at the end of regulation, but the Red Dragons, who have a flair for the dramatic, beat Utica in overtime 47-40.
1: Yeah, a flair for the dramatic in a positive way this season, as opposed to the uh, the way the last season started for the Red Dragons. We might have mentioned that five or six times over the course of the previous three weeks. Uh, Let's see, my most surprising result from Saturday, I I might have to go with Manchester beating Mount St. Joseph. Uh, The Lions, Mount St. Joe, generally a pretty decent defensive team, at least I thought. So to see Manchester put up 562 yards of total offense against them was definitely a surprise. Um, I could see the 589 yards that uh, Manchester put up against Earlham last week, but this is a a different caliber of opponent. Let's see, Manchester quarterback Logan Haston, uh, 27 for 33 passing for 334 yards and three touchdowns. But I will say this, uh, if Manchester continues that string next week, I'll be really impressed because the Spartans play at Franklin next week.
0: Well, there were some big surprising results in the top 25. The margin in St. Thomas and St. John's, the margin in Wabash-Wittenberg, and the, the Chicago Center game, certainly all those really surprising results. But in the interest of saying something different, how about Whitworth winning by 30 at Chapman? The Pirates, who are now 3-0, and they broke the game open with a score, then an interception that led to a two-play drive and another score just before the half.
1: Stat of the week, I think we'll stick with the University of Chicago for a second. I'm going to go with Chandler Carroll, who ran for a school record 311 yards on 30 carries and scored three touchdowns for the Maroons in that win versus center. Uh, He also took a pass 26 yards for a first down on third and long, putting the Maroons in Colonel territory and setting up a touchdown four plays later. I'm just going to reiterate, Chandler Carroll uh, ran for a school record uh, at a, a Division III school that has a Heisman Trophy winner.
0: That is a pretty, actually a big deal. <laughs> um, I wrote two stats of the week because I thought one of mine was so obvious that maybe you'd take it, um, but you didn't. You found a different one, which is probably not as, as hard as we're making it seem because there's so many games in D3 on any given weekend. The The Salisbury one was just so obvious um, that that I thought that would be uh, your choice are for you stats sa- of the week.
1: Are you saying I can only do the obvious stats?
0: No, no, I'm just saying it was, you know, first one to come to mind. Uh, 14 seagulls rushed for 537 yards in Salisbury's 90, 91 to seven win against Southern Virginia. I had to slow down because, you know, it's hard to wrap your mind around a team scoring 91. Salisbury threw just five passes and they scored five touchdowns in the second quarter on drives of two, one, two five and two plays they had just six third downs but here's maybe the most impressive stat 9.6 yards per carry
1: you know keith when yeah. you're when you're up big in a game like that and you're a triple option team what do you do to try to not run up the score you you're still running the ball
0: yeah i mean that is their offense and and that's how you get 14 backs touches and you know but that that's pretty much all they could do at that point point. and in southern virginia um and, and Salisbury both transitioning into the NJAC this season their first uh, their first conference meeting one for the record books I guess but uh, certainly not one for the memory book here, here was my uh, other stat of the week just in case Salisbury w- was too obvious um Leandre Simon of St. Lawrence did something that possibly no other player in division three will accomplish all season he scored two touchdowns in 13 seconds one on offense catching a pass and he went out there Played the the series on defense, picked off the first pass, ran it back for a touchdown. So uh, he actually had three touchdowns in uh, early in that in that game for Saint Lawrence. They beat Union.
1: Uh, triple take. Let's start with the. Um, oh, let's start with the. Let's start with the good ones. Uh, let's see. So I, I, we may have mentioned a couple times in the course of the last forty minutes or so that uh, the University of Chicago beat Center, uh, but that was uh, Ryan Tips's top twenty-five pick for the most likely to a team to be upset um keith you picked uh john carroll uh losing to baldwin wallace as your top 25 upset that nearly happened and similarly i picked uh wesley losing to north central that nearly happened as well uh but i did pick uh john carroll as a uh, surprisingly close game and now yeah all three of their games have been surprisingly close um let's see uh, winless teams getting a getting their first uh or a, a key win. Uh, you got River Falls beating Southwestern. Uh, I had Carthage beating Lakeland. Maybe that's not overly impressive, but it is Carthage's first win, and the Redmen are going to need all the wins that they could get because uh, CCW play is up next. Uh, and for that matter, Ryan nearly had uh, Hamilton ups- upsetting tough. so it wasn't a bad week for Triple Take.
0: No, it, it was pretty accurate, Pat. And you know, if you want to go one step further. Um, you had uh, Whitewater Morningside as as your game of the week or along with uh, St. Thomas, St. John's, and, and that game came down to a, a late-game drive that decided it. And uh, I had Wesley and North Central in there as game of the week as well. So um, the, the the week lived up to, to what we billed it as in Triple Take. There were some bad predictions, though.
1: I didn't know if you wanted me to rag on you or if you wanted to rag on yourself there.
0: Uh, either way. <laughs>
1: Well, so uh, we we were uh, we were tasked to predict something about the NESCAC, which started this uh, started this week, and uh, Keith uh, predicted that one of the main teams would win. There were three of them: Colby, Bates, and Bowden, and uh, they did not, and they were outscored by uh, a combined ninety-eight to twenty-one.
0: Yeah, that was that was the the bad pick that stood out. And though, by the way, those are the main teams, MAA. I and E, not just the main teams in the NESCAC. A lot of the main teams actually won.
1: That is true. Uh, Amherst won. Middlebury won in a close game. Um, you're, 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 ta- you're, you're testing me if I figure out oh, Tufts won. I, I What else can I pull out of the uh, NESCAC out of my memory? Because I do not have a well, full scoreboard me, in front of me. Yeah,
0: your, your, your main NESCAC teams are Amherst, Trinity, Williams has fallen uh, off in recent years and sort of been replaced by uh, by Middlebury and Wesleyan. But uh, all those, you know, Middlebury and Wesleyan played in week one. But a pretty a lot of the main MAIN teams won. None of the teams from the state of Maine, however, did very well.
1: I'm so good at lightning rounds! I don't know how good we are at lightning rounds. We're very good at the round, not great at the lightning, but we'll give this a shot. Bet you thought you'd get through a week without hearing about Finlandia, right? But uh, no, the Lions had the first lead in the history of the program when they took the opening drive and scored on Wisconsin Stevens' point to go up 6 0. Uh, that lead was short lived, though, lasted just 17 seconds when the Pointers returned the kickoff for a touchdown uh, and made the extra point. But uh, hey, baby steps, right?
0: Yeah, baby steps indeed. How about MIT finally winning after that big season last year? They've, uh, they, had a, they stumbled out of the gates this year, but they beat Maine Maritime. Uh, Adis Ojeda, 22 carries, 262 yards, three rushing touchdowns.
1: All right, uh, Trinity Texas uh, beat Pacific Lutheran to improve to 4-0. Trinity's 4-0 and the four opponents they've played so far actually combined for zero wins this season. Obviously that's not likely to continue but it does seem like a bit of a statistical oddity. Uh Stevenson also improved to 4-0 on Saturday.
0: Yeah, and looking for that that year 4, year 5 bounce from uh from Stevenson now that they're uh, they're uh, they're a serious program now. Uh another serious program out in the CCIW. Uh, elmhurst are now three and zero. Josh Williams had a pretty big game. I guess we saw—we've talked about some much bigger rushing numbers than this, but he had twenty-eight carries, one hundred twenty-two yards, two touchdowns. The Blue Jays are three and zero after beating Simpson.
1: How about uh, Emory and Henry, or for that matter, how about East Tennessee State, the uh, the honorary Division Three member? They've lost to two three D three schools this season, uh, and in this case, it was the Wasps of Emory and Henry beating East uh, East Tennessee on Saturday. Emory and Henry scored with fifty five seconds left to win that game. Still, Keith, um, you know East Tennessee State looks really good through forty eight minutes, and then those freshmen trying to figure out how to play those final twelve minutes against quality Division Three competition.
0: Yeah, and those those quality D threes will. D3 teams will take their shots while they can get them because uh, maybe in a couple years uh, those those scholarships will uh, will make them a much tougher team to beat. Framingham State held on to beat uh, Western Connecticut 39-34 in a big MASCAC showdown. So just like uh, the Wabash-Wittenberg game where it has a big early season clash and that team is in the driver's seat, uh, I think the Rams are probably in the driver's seat now for a, for a playoff bid and they have an automatic bid now.
1: In Minnesota or in the MIAC, Gustavus uh, beating Augsburg 59 to 42. A shootout between quarterbacks Mitch Hendricks and Airson Scott. And um, I have to tell you, Mitch Hendricks. As you remember he's a former St. John's quarterback. Uh, I had to. I have to admit, I heard at the tailgate before the game some questions about, "Gee, wouldn't it be nice to have Mitch Hendricks in uniform today?"
0: Well, they sure would have liked to have the numbers he put up on Saturday against Augsburg. He was 26. 26- of 32 for Gustavus, 311 yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions. He also got uh, Gustavus also got 178 rushing yards from Kareem Ortiz. Ireton Scott, of course, did his uh, share of work, 288 yards passing, three touchdowns, and a mere 173 yards rushing.
1: I would like to go back and just see his rushing game, uh, game log uh, game by game over the past four seasons. This guy's a senior. He's been uh, he's been doing some great things on offense. Augsburg just hasn't been quite able to put it together and uh, and and make use of him in and, and you know, get up into the upper echelon in the M.I.A.C. Yes. Okay. According- that's tough. Tough, to, etch, t- tough echelon to get into. Yeah, that's true. I realized as I said that. Well, yeah, yeah. A lot of teams would have trouble doing that. Uh, how about the Midwest Conference? Let's see. Uh, Monmouth over Carroll. Uh, Saint Norbert over Illinois College. Um, you know, Monmouth and Carroll. That's a, a game in the in the um, you know that is a could be a, have been a possible right conference uh, championship game preview right because they're from uh, different divisions. Saint Norbert versus Illinois College. We thought that would be a, a conference championship game preview last year. Um, Saint Norbert didn't get there, Illinois College did, and now this year, Illinois College kind of retooling its offense and Saint Norbert's looking pretty good so far.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and that's you know, after that they've had a, a lot of coaching turnover. They were the they were the team to beat in that conference for years. And and, and on the other side of the ball, that, that result, by the way, Saint Norbert won twenty-one to two over Illinois College um michael bates had been the quarterback for four years uh for illinois college starting all four of those years and this is the first time without him and so that's part of the reason why they're uh, retooling that offense
1: how about the way the conference standings have turned upside down uh, in the early going in the middle atlantic conference um fdu forum is two and one lycoming is one and three and and the the uh you know, Albright beating Lyco 32-10 to was almost my most surprising result today. Not necessarily because it was a surprise that Albright beat Lyco, but that how, how well they handled him.
0: Yeah, the 32-10 margin I think was pretty big standout. And we saw in uh, Ryan Tip's snap judgment column on um, Sunday, he has Albright in the top 25. It, and it's certainly been a long time since we've seen that. But I, it's been a longer time since we've seen uh, Lycoming struggle as, as much as they are this season.
1: All right, Mount Union. We haven't talked about them as much as we've talked about, uh, you know, how prolific their uh, passing offense has been and how interesting it's been with Therese Scott and Roman Namdar and the like. Uh, on Saturday, they did it instead on the ground. They ran for 412 yards uh, as part of a 716-yard offensive performance in a 61-to-nothing win against Marietta.
0: Yeah, and it felt like uh, like everybody in the top 25 was in action and playing a huge game on on Saturday or on Thursday night, as it were. Uh, Mountain Union wasn't playing a huge game, and Linfield and Mary Harden-Baylor, two teams in the top five, they didn't play at all. And, in fact, uh, Linfield's only played two games through four weeks.
1: Well, it'll be the J. Losey reunion on uh, Saturday. Linfield gets back in action. They uh, travel to Lewis and Clark. Uh, But Platteville at Wisconsin-Whitewater, a big game right out of the gate in the Wyatt, Keith.
0: Yeah, both of those teams coming off uh, pretty big wins. Platteville two weeks ago beating North Central, uh, and Whitewater, of course, the win over Morningside.
1: What else is coming up in Week Five? We've got Central at Wartburg, uh, Christopher Newport hosting Rowan, and uh, this Thomas More and uh, W and J matchup that we've been awaiting.
0: Yeah, same thing as we saw this week with with uh, uh, Wabash and Wittenberg. That that's the game in, in the Presidents Athletic Conference between Thomas More and W and J. That's a game that that tells all of us on the outside whether you know, which team to take seriously. Do we take both teams seriously? Uh, both of them have come blazing out the gate, so uh, so we watching that one pretty
1: closely. Uh, elsewhere, let's see, John Carroll's hosting Ohio Northern. Uh, Bethel heads up to Concordia Moorhead, and uh, 2,000 called it wants its game back. Harden Simmons is traveling to Trinity, Texas.
0: Yeah, you hit it on the head, Pat. This wasn't a game that we circled back when we were doing kickoff. Uh, that we have to watch in week five Harden Simmons at Trinity but both teams undefeated and playing yeah playing like the early 2000s when they were two of the dominant teams in Texas Uh,
1: among the many Empire 8 games which will all be kind of uh, elimination type battles uh, Ithaca is at Utica Uh, let's see University of Chicago comes off that big win at home and now they travel down to Birmingham Alabama to play Birmingham Southern and uh, oh one more Finlandia mention Uh, Finlandia hosts Maranatha Baptist
0: you may see Finlandia get its first win this week. We may mention them again next week. We can't help it. We're sorry.
1: And that was the Around the Nation podcast, number 135, for the week of September twenty-eighth, 2015. Thanks for listening, and uh, tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it in order to help other football fans find it. Uh, thanks for following Division Three football on D3Football.com.